Hello, and welcome to Lifelines Radio, a production of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher, Legislative Director of the Federation. Joining us today is Ellen Kolb, a pro-life advocate from New England. Welcome, Ellen. Hi, Maria. It's good to, good to be with you. It's so great to be with you. And Ellen, can you tell us, how did you come to hold your pro-life views? Well, they kind of snuck up on me. Um, I grew up in a Catholic household, so in the background was this sense of the value of life. Um, but as I was in high school, Roe v. Wade was handed down when I was in high school, and I wasn't really conscious of it. I just went through high school knowing abortion was legal, and I thought, well, I'd never do it, but I can't make that decision for someone else. Then I went off to college and took biology classes, and without any intention on the part of my instructor, I simply looked at human development and thought, I can't have it both ways. If this really is a human being in utero, I can't say, oh, well, that's not my problem. And so there I was. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you came upon that realization in college, because sometimes people mm -hmm. go the other way in college, but you actually affirmed the pro-life belief in college. Well, I, it was interesting that I wasn't really looking for a spiritual home in college, although I'd been raised Catholic, but it was providential that at the University of Florida back then, there was a very vibrant Newman Center um, associated with the Catholic Church there, um, a, a remarkably diverse group of people from backgrounds I wasn't familiar with, and that was a wonderful place for formation of faith. Terrific. And how did you begin pro-life advocacy? Because it's one thing to decide, okay, I, I made the decision, I am pro-life, but it's quite another thing mm -hmm. to be an advocate for life. So how did you make that transition? Well, I've always been interested in politics and public policy. This goes back to before I was in high school. And uh, when I was a young mom, had graduated from college and moved up here, a very small pro-life nonprofit was looking to keep track of what was happening at the state house. And New Hampshire is unique and wonderful in that we have the most wide open state government. You know, we have 400 state representatives for a population of a million and a half people. We have a state house with no security to speak of. Anybody can walk in and listen. It was a wonderful place to get engaged. And I soon found that not only could I sit in on hearings, but I could make statements. And it was a little scary, but I was with neighbors. It got easier. So I started out as a volunteer. And over a period of years after volunteering, I later grew into a professional capacity of promoting pro-life policy for nonprofits in New Hampshire. That's outstanding. And, and I thought we had a big job here in Pennsylvania because we have 203 state representatives. But yes. my goodness, I had yep, no we idea. Have 400 state reps and 24 senators, the, uh, and they get paid $100 a year. So they are essentially volunteers. And I've seen from going to other state houses, it makes a difference when you're not dealing with a professional policymaker. You really are eye to eye with someone who's in the same position you are, and it facilitates conversation. That's just remarkable. Now, do you recall where you were when you found out that Roe versus Wade had been overturned? Oh, yes. Um, my readers of the blog that I have kept since 2012, Levin for the Loaf, um, know that I cover statehouse things and national policy. So I knew the Supreme Court was coming down with it. Every 
decision day at 10 a.m. I was parked in my favorite coffee shop with a mocha in my hand, monitoring the Supreme Court. So at the day, the moment the decision was handed down, I was there, braced for it, eager to see what it said, ready to report to my readers what was going on. And after waiting for it for so long, actually seeing it just took my breath away. Did, did you ever think that that day would come? I thought the day would come, but I did not know what it would be like. Um, I thought something has to change as the membership of the court changes, but the question was, were they going to decide based on the fundamental value of human life, or were they going to decide based on some political thing? And of course, we know now they decided on a political thing. The Supreme Court's message was, get us out of this. Yes. Um, rather than affirming the value of human life. But even so, um, to have been at this long enough to see this day come was really, really sobering for me. Yeah, it was interesting because I was at the National Right to Life Convention when I found out. Oh. And I was surprised by the tears that were shed. You know, we we were looking forward to this with such hope and expectation and we thought there would be joy. And there was joy. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of tears because, you know, it, it was such a hard struggle. Yeah, and the first thing I looked for was, is it possible that maybe they would declare recognize, not create, but recognize the fundamental value of life? There was always a danger that the court could have overturned Roe to say, no, the woman has an indisputable constitutional right. They could have been they could have taken Roe and made it more so. Well, no, they didn't, and that's good news. But anytime a pro-life person wakes up in the morning and says, There, my job is done, go back to bed, because you got to get up again with a different attitude. That is so true. And and I'm finding that there are some people who thought that once Roe was overturned, that, that was it that our job was over and it really just began in a sense. Absolutely. Um, I remember a generation ago, I was doing a radio interview with a representative of an abortion advocacy group in New Hampshire. And the one thing we agreed on was we didn't want 50 state battles. Well, that's what we have. We work with what we have state by state. No point in whining about it. Do what you can where you are with what you have. And what keeps you advocating for life despite the challenges that you face? Part of it is being willing to learn new things. Um, if I find myself, I found myself, I, I retired from uh, professional lobbying a couple of years ago because I found when I went into a hearing room and saw some of the same negative faces I'd seen, I was no longer seeing people. I was seeing positions. And that's a clue. It's time to step back. So what keeps me going is learning more about the pregnancy care centers that are all around me, learning more about the care for uh, elders and people who are disabled in my area. It's impossible at one time to do everything in pro-life work, but there's always an opportunity to learn more, to explore more, to build new relationships. That's what keeps me going is I always have more to learn. Yeah, I find that definitely is true because I mean, there was a time when we didn't know anything about abortion pills, mm -hmm. abortion pill reversal, and that's a whole new phase right now. And, and we are seeing where the majority of 
abortions now are performed by pill. Yes, I know in New Hampshire, well over half, it is the, the predominant form of abortion. And this is something that abortion advocates in public office say, well, reversal is impossible. That's fringe. That's dangerous for women. Instead of worrying about what the politicians are saying, it's important to learn about it from the physicians and medical personnel who are working on abortion pill reversal. Make sure that your allies in the pro-life movement know it and let them get the word out. The politicians will catch up. But rather than looking to the state house to learn about things like abortion pill reversal, learn about them on your own with the help of medical advice, and then you can spread the word. What do you see as the greatest challenges we face right now in the pro-life movement? The greatest challenge is thinking that a public policy or a law can take the place of relationship. This has become more clear to me uh, the older I've gotten and as I've moved in a phase beyond public policy. Nothing will change hearts like a personal conversation, a personal relationship. You know, 80% of what gets done in any state house, you know this, Maria, is done before the hearing. It happens in private conversations when someone shares her own experience, when someone shares her own fears about dealing with a troublesome pregnancy. The conversations are what happens. And I think that uh, if each person with a pro-life commitment recommits to having those private conversations, building those relationships, that is a true step forward. Yeah, that is so important because we we have people who contact us and they ask us, what can we do? And mm -hmm. that it seems like a very simple thing that yeah. everyone can do. And, you know, it's important that people be aware of what's going on legislatively. That's what I've been writing about um, from the New Hampshire level since 2012. And when there is a vote or there is an issue, if there's something practical and simple people can do, attend a hearing, make a phone call, send a message. That's fine. But that the effect of that is going to grow out of the relationships you've had. If my state representative knows me, if someone I see at my kid's soccer game or groceries or whatever, when they see me there and then they get an email, they know, oh, okay, this is from my neighbor, Ellen, instead of, oh, there goes another one of those pro-lifers. <laughs> and, and tell us, what is the state of affairs in New Hampshire right now? Very challenging. Mm -hmm. Very challenging. We have... Um, I've heard it called a purple state. Uh, we have a Republican governor who um, identifies pro-choice. Uh, we have an evenly split legislature uh, where one party is solidly, firmly pro-abortion and the other is split on it. We are going to face a constitutional amendment next year. It's going to be debated in Concord. And there is an excellent chance that that will make progress because it is about reproductive health, woman's choice. Um, and right now, the attitude is very much, I wouldn't have it for myself, but I don't want to make that decision for someone else. We are back where we were in some ways in the mid-70s. Pro-life movement needs to help move the culture forward and stop this backward-looking stuff. Yeah, and, and I, I said uh, today in, in a radio program that I did, you know, the unborn child often gets lost in the discussion yes. because we're we're focusing on reproductive justice and reproductive mm -hmm. rights and reproductive health. And what about that child? 
The child, indeed. Um, New Hampshire, a couple of years ago, passed a 24-week limitation on abortion, which was a profound success. Well, ever since then, there have been attempts to push it back, push it back, put, you know, to, to weaken it. And right now, a, a eugenic abortion uh, exception has already been put in if the child has a disability. Instead of focusing on that, focus on the child and the mother rather than pit the child against the mother. Well, she's carrying a disabled child, therefore her life is in danger. It's important to affirm not only her dignity and health, but the child's dignity and health. I think we go down a very bad road when in the name of reproductive justice, we tell a child who is somehow physically impaired in the womb we don't want you. It's better if you are aborted. Because the people who are alive living with disabilities can hear that. Absolutely. And and to what extent do pro-lifers need to share personal stories? I know that the Absolutely other side. Extension. Yeah, the other side does a lot of, of this talking about um personal uh challenges and, and uh difficulties that they face. What should the pro-lifers be doing? It is absolutely essential that we become comfortable with sharing our own stories. Every pro-life person has got a history. There's something that they've gone through, something they've experienced that has either changed their heart or strengthened what's already a pro-life commitment. Um, and it takes practice. When you first share, I, I thought years ago, if only a woman who's had an abortion and regrets it sits in front of a committee, all she has to do is tell her story and we're done. No, become familiar within a group of people with whom you're comfortable with sharing your story, whether it's having an abortion and regretting it, whether it's carrying a difficult pregnancy to term, whatever it is, become comfortable with it. And then you start taking that story person to person to the people making policy so that when they go in and have conversations with their colleagues, they can say, well, one of my constituents told me this or that. That is how abortion advocates have made most of their progress in New Hampshire. And it's essential that we get over any hesitation and start sharing stories of our own. Terrific. What would you say to a woman who is contemplating abortion? I'd say, tell me about yourself. You know, I'm, I, I'm here to listen. Tell me about yourself. You know, I'd love to know, uh, you know, where, where you're at right now. Tell me what's, uh, I need to know what's going on in her heart. And she needs to know someone's willing to listen who doesn't have a dollar sign attached to it. I gain nothing by being on a sidewalk with, with say, 40 Days for Life, for example. Nobody's paying me to be there. Nobody's paying me to bring someone to a pregnancy care center. Like, I'm here. I have no financial stake in this. I'm interested in you. Tell me where you're at. Only then can I know exactly what resources to bring. And fortunately, we have pregnancy care centers in New Hampshire uh, with access to an amazing number of resources who can provide support for a woman. But very few are going to walk through there without some kind of encouragement from someone who's willing to listen. You're listening to Lifelines Radio, a production of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher, Legislative Director of the Federation. We are talking today to pro-life advocate, Ellen Kolb. 
Ellen, I met you virtually through the Catholic mm -hmm. Writers Guild. Yes. Tell us about your writing life. My writing is mostly blogging. I call it short form nonfiction, but that's what I do. Um, I am a hiker. I love the New Hampshire outdoors, and I've been blogging since 2006 about that on Granite State Walker. And when I realized that I could put my writing in blogging at the service of the pro-life movement, that's when I started Leaven for the Loaf, and I've been writing ever since. And I actually published my first book in January of this year to observe the anniversary of the blog's founding. I took some of the best stories, the most encouraging stories about the people I've met in the course of blogging and published them as pro-life journeys. And I'm very happy that whatever happens to the blog, that book remains with the encouraging stories that I hope people will take with them and encourage them to do things in the future that are going to build a culture of life. Tell me more about that book. That book started out as something I figured I'll just take the 10 best or the 10 most popular posts going back to 2012 and I'll make a PDF and just tell my readers, here you go. And it it took on a life of its own. I started putting together stories and thought, no, the most popular posts aren't necessarily it. What are the stories? Who are the people who, who keep coming back to me, the people I can't forget? And what do people need to hear? I know a woman who had been trafficked as a child. I didn't know this until I'd known her for years and she chose to go public. She had been trafficked, became pregnant, and it was a pro-life pregnancy care center who took in her and her child and changed her life. I know a woman a few miles from me who worked for Planned Parenthood in Boston for years until someday, one day she was cleaning up after a second trimester abortion and it suddenly hit her. This is not why I got involved. This is not helping women. I talked about families that had worked for years to pass legislation to protect children who, were, who survived abortions. We are still working to get there, but these people, what they do, their willingness to speak out, and these are, many of them are local people. These are so encouraging. And so I ended up putting together stories that sort of flow into one another, include a little bit of public policy, but it's mostly on a variety of things, the death penalty, um, end of life issues, abortion. It all came together. All these people I've met through the years, it's like they all tapped me on the shoulder and said, no, we're the ones people need to hear about. Never mind your statistics. Never mind what's popular. We're what people need to hear about. I think so often we forget to talk about the end of life issues. So what have yes. you learned about those end of life issues? Um, they are very difficult. And the older I get, caring for age ailing elders, um, and also working with people who are faced with life-limiting diagnoses. Again, listening is important. You start out with the assumption that you never intentionally or do anything to intentionally shorten or terminate a human life. That may be a secondary effect of the treatment. But being ill doesn't make your life any less worthwhile. We are challenged to deal with people's pain. In fact, if you look at where assisted suicide has been legal for years, never mind what the law says about how it's about intractable pain and a death within six months. What people are afraid of who actually ask for that prescription is loneliness and being a burden. Physical pain is a factor, but being a burden is a bigger challenge than anything else for someone who is suffering from 
what is considered a life-limiting illness. So we have a lot to learn again, listening to each other, affirming the value of life, acknowledging that when people say they're in pain, it's real, and then looking for life-affirming ways to deal with that and not letting each other walk alone when we're going through this. And what's the status of assisted suicide in New Hampshire? It is not in place. It is uh, debated every so often. We are surrounded by states that have enacted it. Vermont, in fact, just got rid of its uh, residential requirement for it, which we find has happened in other states. They become sort of assisted suicide tourism destinations. But right now in New Hampshire, the last time there was a serious effort to pass assisted suicide, something new happened. The disability rights community stood up. And the people who are comfortable with assisted suicide aren't used to seeing conventional pro-lifers standing up next to disability rights organizations. That stopped it cold. Always be willing to build new coalitions. You cannot evangelize from behind a moat. You can't persuade people to be pro-life by only talking to people who are pro-life. Be willing to build coalitions. Yeah, that has been so vitally important in the uh, effort to stop assisted suicide, these coalitions of groups. Mm -hmm. And we have to get comfortable with the fact that we need to work with people who may not share our views on all the life issues. But, Absolutely. But on the issue of assisted suicide, we can come together, we can work together, and we can stop bad laws from happening. Yes, and even if the laws are in place, there's a, there's a need for voices who will say, being ill doesn't take away your right to life. Your right to life is worth defending and we will stand there with you. Whatever pain you're feeling, tell us what you need. We will do our best to meet it. Because any of us, the thing about assisted suicide and end of life, all of us are gonna reach that point where we're gonna be faced with, is it easier for me to work through this or do I take the way out that the law says I can? There's so much we can do individually by relationships to build a culture of life that politics will have to catch up with. Absolutely. How can we use words to build up a culture of life? It is so easy to tear down a culture of life with the wrong words. And this is something I learn and it has to be reinforced to be over and over again. Anytime I'm writing, is it motivated by love? Is it motivated by truth? And is it motivated by a commitment to peaceful action? If something I'm writing or saying does not meet all three of those, I need to put down the keyboard, walk away, and come back. Any words that don't convey that are not going to be pro-life in the long run. You That's an important lesson to learn it, because I, I know that um, some of us, when we first get involved in the pro-life movement, we have a lot of zeal and, and we have a mm -hmm. lot of anger for what's going on because it's, yes. it's the, it's often the, the taking of the life of, of the very innocent and the vulnerable. But I find that that anger is not effective for the most part, that we need to um, look to love rather than yes. to express our anger. A young friend of mine recently sent me a clipping she found of something I wrote 30 years ago. <laughs> and it was funny to read it because my beliefs are the same, but I was talking about how outraged I was about this, that, and the other thing. And this was something for publication in um, a newspaper, the largest newspaper in the state. 
yeah, there's a place for righteous anger. That is tremendously motivating. But if I publish something in the paper, I'm talking to a group that doesn't agree with me. And I need to take that passion for life and express it in a way that someone will say, huh, I never thought of it that way. You're always trying to make that connection and say, I never thought of it that way. That's where the next generation of pro-life will come from, because we're always building a bench, aren't we? We're looking for people who will take this on. You know, a feeling I got when jobs came down, something else that hit me hard was, you know, this is not going to, the next phase is not going to be my fight. I'm not going to live that long. I mean, look how long it took to overturn Roe. And I'm going to stay active as long as there's breath in my body. But the odds are, I'm not going to be around for the next seismic political shift. So it's my job to make sure that after me, there's a generation and another generation equally convicted of the value of life who will take that forward. If you look around, if if I look around myself and see people who look just like me, I haven't done my job. In order to be pro-life, we are building a large community, we are reaching out, and we're making coalitions and relationships that we never thought possible. We've got just a couple of minutes left, and I'm wondering if you can tell people how to get that fabulous book, how to learn about your blog, how to connect with you. I would love to meet new readers. The book Pro-Life Journey by Ellen Kolb is available on Amazon. Uh, It is available on Kindle in an ebook version. And without illustrations, I think the ebook is a wonderful thing to do. You can take it with you anywhere you go. Also, the book is available in hard copy. And my blog is Leaven for the Loaf. That is the one that is committed to New Hampshire action. It's very regional. I also have an author page, ellencolb.com, where I write more about my faith, about life issues in general. And I also stick in some of my favorite hikes because, really, we have a beautiful world out there. And sometimes when you're doing politics, you just have to put it down and get outside and enjoy God's creation. That is so true. And and I have never visited New Hampshire before, but I've heard so many wonderful things about it. And I'm, I'm sure the hiking is just tremendous. It's wonderful. And you're welcome here anytime. Come say hi. <laughs> That's terrific. Well, Ellen Cole, um, you are definitely an inspiration to all of us um, who labor in the pro-life vineyards. And we want to thank you so much for appearing on Lifelines Radio today. Thank you, Maria. It's wonderful to be here. You've been listening to Lifelines Radio, a production of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. We've been speaking with stellar advocate for life, Ellen Kolb. This is your program. We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas for new episodes of Lifelines Radio, please give us a call at 717-541-0034. That's 717-541-0034. Or you can email us at gallagher at paprolife.org. That's gallagher at paprolife.org. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher. Legislative Director of the Federation. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life.